Welcome to the Inside Carolina podcast, presented by Jersey Mike Subs of Chapel Hill. Get 15% off your online order with the promo code HEELS15. Go to jerseymikes.com slash order now. I'm your host, Tommy Ashley, joined by Greg Barnes and Jason Staples. You're listening to the Inside Carolina podcast, sponsored by Jersey Mike's of Chapel Hill. Gentlemen, we're back on schedule. We're recording this on Thursday night. Hurricane Michael is sort of pushed out of this area um, with a little bit of rain where I am and a fair amount of wind. But, Greg, I want to start. Carolina's not going to have to worry about a hurricane game with Virginia Tech, but it has certainly been stormy for North Carolina over the past couple weeks. Bye week football, open date football is not supposed to be this uh, newsworthy. Carolina's football just does not work that way, Greg. <laughs> it's It's been an interesting year for sure, Tom. And uh, it's like JP was talking about earlier this week. They've, they've sat at home and watched football games for three Saturdays so far this year, which is a strange, uh, but kind of it, it plays into how strange of a year this has been for, for the Tar Heels. And uh, everybody was anxious to get Chas Rat off his suspension to see what he could do, see if he could help at quarterback. He plays against Miami, and it's just uh, uh, about as bad of an outing as you could possibly have. Got to hate it for the kid. Uh, and then you know, ends up deciding to have a, a season-ending surgery on his uh, right wrist, his non-throwing wrist. But apparently he had, he had hurt it last year, uh, and so the decision was made after he, he re-injured it against Miami to go ahead and do that do that surgery. And so he's uh, he's out for the season. And so now you're back to pretty much what we had, and that is you, Nathan Elliott is your veteran. You've got young, talented kids and Cade Fortin and, and Jace Reuter uh, who were chomping at the bit to get in there. And then you've got you know, question marks at various other places on the field. And you know, North Carolina, if you look at their games this year, um, you know, really had just a, a horrendous first half against Cal, just a, a terrible game all the way through against East Carolina beat a, a pit team that uh, mediocre at best probably. And then the debacle down in, in Miami. Although you know, when you factor in that there was three uh, defensive touchdowns from Miami, you know, maybe that game wasn't quite as bad as it, the, the score showed, but still wasn't good by any stretch. So now North Carolina is in this position where they have a night game against Virginia tech. Uh, and you, you've got some time to, to rest and to, to get some guys back. Uh, and you pretty much at the at full strength. I mean, this is the first time North Carolina's had this many guys available since 2016. So if you're going to make any kind of statement, you're going to show any kind of fight, you would think a Saturday night game against Virginia Tech would be the, the opportunity for you to do that. Jason, uh, you know, we've talked about it multiple times. Um, we had a podcast a couple of weeks ago about the case for Kate Thornton prior to the open date, and here we are. Chas Surratt's out for the year. Nathan Elliott, he may be the starter. Uh, we'll see. But either way, Thornton's going to get a ton of reps against the Virginia Tech defense that's not too forgiving against a young guy. But your thoughts on – what maybe the last two weeks have been for a guy like Fortin uh, getting ready for his first meaningful major minutes as a college quarterback? Well, I mean, obviously he's going to be dealing with a lot of excitement and some butterflies every day. Um, but on top of that, uh, he 
it depends on how much of, of the offense that they're trying to have him run or whether or not they've limited to specific packages that he's really comfortable with or whatever. I'm interested to see that part of things. Uh, I'll, I will actually, even, even if he doesn't play super well, I actually would feel a little bit better about it if they felt like he was ready to roll uh, and and had him running the whole the whole thing uh, coming in. So that's something I'm going to be watching is is whether or not they're they're limiting him or bringing him in situationally. But um, but anyway, uh, yeah. I I mean I, I I think the the bye week situation is is critical uh, given that you're playing a, a team like Virginia Tech, which will change up coverages on a young guy and all that. But um, but yeah, that. Uh, that that bye week is just crucial, and with the with Surratt actually getting the surgery done, that gives him more reps coming in. So uh, that gives Fortin more reps coming in. So he should be as ready as he as he could be. Greg, uh, you know, the rumors he, rumors are that he's been getting major reps in practice now with Surratt certainly out. Um, he he definitely has. But your thoughts on what Jason mentioned? Maybe the the playbook. I I think. And maybe it's just my naivete. I think it opens it up a little bit from what I've seen from Surratt and Elliott. But your thoughts there, how Carolina will handle trying to attack that Virginia Tech defense? Yeah, I think the way that that Bud Foster works, uh, he knows coming in probably to expect Nathan Elliott. Now, it doesn't mean he's not preparing for everybody else. But I just think back to, uh, you know, Mitch Trubisky, what year was that? 14, I guess, when one of the first plays that he had against Virginia Tech, he tried to throw one of his little quick screens out, and I don't remember if it was Fuller or somebody else, but somebody picked it off and ran back for a touchdown. Uh, and so, yeah, I think it's going to be a matter of knowing how Nathan Elliott plays. I'm sure Bud is going to do what Miami did and some other teams have done, and they do some press coverage on the on the edges to take away those screen passes and force whoever the quarterback is to kind of – make some throws down the field. So, uh, you know, I guess North Carolina, I would assume North Carolina uh, understands that and is probably setting up some plays to take advantage of that. But, yeah, I don't know exactly um, how you do it because you've you got to be careful. you got to have a lot of three-step drops to you know, avoid getting hit, which they've done so they've done pretty well so far. I mean, the offensive line's only given up four sacks. It's not because offensive line has been dominant by any stretch. It's because they've done a relatively good job of getting rid of the ball. Uh, and so, I don't know. I think this is the game where you can kind of roll the dice a little bit because if you can somehow win this game, that takes some pressure off of you, um, and you can actually you make a case that you can make some strides going forward. And so, if that's the the mindset, then maybe you can be aggressive with a gay, guy like Cade Fortin and take some shots. Um, but at the same time, you know, you want to put him in a position where he can succeed. So um, that's a, that's a balancing act. And that's, that's why these coaches make the money they make. Jason, explain to me from your experience, uh, the answer to what Greg just said, when you quote, put a quarterback in position to succeed, I mean, how difficult is it to do that? How much uh, different does a coach do something per a quarterback skill set. Watching Carolina, it doesn't seem like they do much different with whoever, whichever quarterback they have out there. So speak to that 
you know, how would you put Fortin into a, a position to succeed any differently than maybe you would with Elliot? Well, those are those are a couple different questions. Uh, so, for one, if you don't have a quarterback who can really do a whole lot that you want him to do, it doesn't really matter that um, you know you're putting him into a position to succeed or not. You can put him in that position, and he's still not going to succeed. So, so there's always that caveat that, especially depending on what you've got around the guy. I mean, if you put uh, Nathan Elliott at Alabama. Alabama's still undefeated, most likely. He'd he'd look like he was succeeding. Now they wouldn't look like they have with Tua, but they would. They, you know, he would be put into a better position to succeed. So some of that just has to do with who's around you and all that. Now, as far as I'm gonna I'm gonna go to the second part here on what you what I would do to help Fortin succeed to put him in the best positions uh, based on what we know of his skill set based on what we know of Virginia tech and so on uh, and, and how to help young quarterbacks. My view is that in general, if you want to protect a young quarterback and make things as simple as possible for him, you, you really need to go the paradoxical route of throwing the ball a little bit more on first down and preferably in play action, a little bit more down the field. And the reason for that, and that's, so that's the first step. The reason for that is that basically that's the one time that you know that the defense has to play honest. It's the one time when you're going to get the least, you know, messing around in the, uh, in the, um, in the secondary. You're getting the least uh, pressure up front. You're getting, uh, if you're getting blitzes, a lot of them are going to be run blitzes. They're, they're not going to come, come at you with as many, uh, you know, numbers blitzes from one side or another. They're not going to try to confuse you as much. And that's when you're going to have your best opportunity for a quarterback to be able to set his feet, have time to throw, and make a throw within the rhythm of the offense without a whole lot of pressure. So you want to do that more often. The, 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 the younger and more inexperienced and, more, and often more limited your quarterback is, the more you want to do that on first down, the more you become a first down throwing team which is, again, paradoxical for a lot of people because you would think, well, you know, if your guy's not real good, then you, you want to you run it as much as possible. But generally, my, my view is you throw it on first down and then you protect the kid on, say, third and long. So if it's third and seven, third and eight, where you might usually throw it, maybe with the young kid, you decide, yeah, you know, I'm going to limit how many times I ask him to put the ball in the air when the defense is, is expecting pass. On passing downs, that's when I'm going to throw screens. That's when I'm going to run the ball. I'm going to run draws. I'm going to do all that stuff to protect him from situations where he he may he may be at a disadvantage. So basically, you you invert the the, the typical uh, you know traditional game plan, and you you throw on neutral downs and on running downs, and you run on passing downs. Uh, and that that to me is one of the ways that you can really protect a guy. And beyond that, what you do is you make sure that, that you're asking him to do the things that he's most comfortable with. Some guys throw really well in the seams. Some guys throw better to their right. Some guys throw better on the outside of the numbers than the inside. You figure out what the kid is comfortable with, and you call that stuff more often. So, you know, you, you've got two or three concepts that he's really comfortable reading, and that's that. So let me follow up with you there. Is that something that you can get – <clears throat> out of practice 100 percent. well 
you definitely can 100%. But how much of that can you learn in practice situations versus seeing him in game situations, which is, I think, why at least North Carolina has been more hesitant to play young quarterbacks or, or freshmen or whatever quarterbacks. But your thoughts there, how do, how do, you, how do you know? Um, is, is it purely a practice, what he does in practice? We're talking about practice, man. I knew that was coming. Absolutely. What, what are we talking about practice? <laughs> we talking about practice, man. No, it really, it is a, um, it is something practice is not as dissimilar from games in those respects as, as a lot of people think, seem to think game speed turns up, you know, you see different looks and, you know, especially when, when you're versus seven on seven type stuff, which is very artificial in, in practice. There, there are differences, but at the same point, you do get a sense of what throws does he like? What concepts just you know look good to his eye? And when you're when you're reviewing this stuff, particularly from team periods in practice and and all of this, you say, okay, he seems really comfortable going through the progression on these few things. And you ask the kid, what are you comfortable with? Uh, and then you know beyond that, you 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 learn over the course of the game. You know the first first game action, you learn and you stack that along the knowledge that you gain in practice. But you can get some sense of what a guy's comfortable with in practice and what a guy's capable of doing. I mean, I don't think it was – it's a revelation that Nathan Elliott doesn't throw certain balls especially well. You don't need to go to games to see that, right? You don't need to go to a game. You don't need to put Fortin into a game to see whether he, throw, he, can, he can throw, say, a skinny post with accuracy. You can't – it, that that stuff you can see in practice that stuff flashes one way or another so beyond that it's it's really how a kid handles pressure handles the environment uh handles when things aren't going right on game day that's the stuff you can't you can't evaluate in practice you know that's that's where you have to deal with it in the game but the the other stuff conceptually what you know what he's comfortable with and and what he's capable of that stuff you can usually assess in practice. Greg, I've got a, a similar follow-up with you on that, but I want to tell you about Jersey Mike Subs of Chapel Hill. Of course, they've po- partnered with Inside Carolina, this podcast, to provide a great deal for IC Podcast listeners. All fall, use the code HEELS15 to get 15% off your order online. Nothing beats a Jersey Mike Subs for a quick, quick delicious lunch or a tailgating alternative before a big game. And now that the Tar Heels have a night game, you can get some Jersey Mikes on your way into Chapel Hill at one of four area locations, now five area locations. Come in, tailgate before the Virginia Tech game, come down to the Bowls lot, share some of your Jersey Mikes with my crew, Buck Sanders' crew, and the rest of the Tar Heel fans down there. But here's how it works. Go to jerseymikes.com, front slash order. It'll show the locations nearest you. Click on your order. Pick your favorite sub or subs. Check out Heels 15 code, and you get that 15%. Skip the line. Head straight to the register. Grab your food, and you're on your way. It's our opinion that Jersey Mike's is the superior sub option. Tasty, delicious, and always hits the spot. Do it again. Excuse me. Let me tell you again. Place an online order. Use one of the four area Chapel Hill and Hillsborough locations. Remember the code HEELS15. Three locations in Chapel Hill on Elliott Road, off MLK, and at Falcon Bridge Shopping Center on 54, and one in Hillsborough right off exit 261. And also look for Jersey Mike's inside Keenan Stadium with the tailgate guys this fall. 
And lastly, Wednesday, this past Wednesday, there was a grand opening for a New Jersey Mike store at Chatham Crossing in the Lowe's Food Shopping Center. Right down 15501 from Chapel Hill. Good for those folks coming from Laurenburg, Pinehurst, Southern Pine, Sanford, or Pittsburgh. Remember, Hills 15 at jerseymikes.com front slash order. Choose one of those area locations. Get your sub. Skip the line. Get your subs. Head out to the ball game or head out to lunch. Whatever works for you, just do it. Jersey Mike subs of Chapel Hill. Greg, which brings us to um, the one thing I haven't understood basically ever since maybe Giovanni Bernard was the running back is Carolina not utilizing the talent they have at running back enough. And I'm looking at the season stats here. Uh, Antonio Williams is averaging just under 11 carries a game. Jordan Brown, just over eight. Michael Carter, I believe six and a half carries. Jordan Brown's got the least yards per carry, which is four. Williams is six and a half per. And Michael Carter's a whopping 7.9 per. Now, Virginia takes a different animal on defense. But like Jason said, the, the thought is to run the ball more, um, but that may not necessarily be what works against Virginia Tech. Your thoughts on Carter, Brown, and Williams, and maybe even Javante Williams, getting more action finally uh, for North Carolina running backs against Virginia Tech. Well, again, this all goes back to Fedora's scheme, right? I mean, he's going to count the box and, and take what the defense gives him. I mean, we've talked about this ad nauseum over the years, uh, but he's not going to all of a sudden say, hey, they've got eight guys in the box, but we've got good running backs, so we're going to run it anyway. It's not what he's going to do. I mean, it's just not him. <laughs> um, now, what you did see against Miami is he started using, utilizing that diamond package, and I think they had a lot of success with that package, and that allowed them to get uh, Michael Carter, Jordan Brown, and Antonio Williams in the game uh, specifically with Chaz Surratt. So now you basically got four running backs in the backfield, and they were able to have some success with that. And you don't have Chaz now, so that kind of eliminates part of it, but you can still use that formation some. So that's how you kind of uh, work around that. And he, he he showed against Miami he's willing to do that. But the way Fedora's system works is if a team is determined to make you throw the ball, Fedora knows he's got to take advantage of that. Now, <laughs> uh, we can have you know, laughs and all kinds of things about whether or not that's uh, feasible or it's been feasible or, or however well it's worked because it hasn't worked very well at all this year. Uh, but that's that's how his system is structured. And he's been asked a couple of times in the last you know, couple of weeks, so you, you've been running the ball well, not passing the ball well. You, are you going to start running it more? And the the funny thing that I got out of it is that Fedora said, so do you mean like you know, kind of the Paul Johnson, Georgia Tech, just run it all the time? Like, no, we're not. We haven't considered doing that. Uh, so it's not even really a kind of a thought process for him. The other part of it, too, is this. Um, and I don't know exactly how this factors in, but I think it's relevant. Uh, we, we've we've started using pro football focus stats, which is a very unique and thorough database. Uh, and while North Carolina has had plenty of success running the ball, the run blocking has actually not been good. And so if you look at kind of the non-sack ru- rushing yardage, UNC on the year has had 758 yards at a 5.5 yards per attempt uh, average, which is good. 
But then you look at what North Carolina's running backs have done with uh, yards after contact. And so 491, those 758 yards, so a lot more than half, have come after contact. Uh, and so that kind of negates a little bit. It's one thing if you say, well, the offensive line has just been a force. They've been run blocking great. Take advantage of it. But that hasn't been the case. It's been the, the running backs really doing a good job of making something out of nothing. Uh, and we've seen that on a number of occasions where you know, they've, they've gotten hit maybe at the second level and have squirmed away and end up with a 30-yard run. But a lot of times they've been tackled for a yard loss here, yard loss here, two yards here. Um, and so it's while the numbers look good for the running game, um, I think when you kind of drill down a little bit, it's not as impressive, and it's certainly not impressive enough to say, okay, we're just going to really you know, scrap what we've been doing passing-wise and lean you know, much more heavily on the on the run game. Jason, is it as simple as that for Larry, against Larry Fedora's offense? I mean, I can put eight in the box, and I can guarantee you're going to try to throw it. I mean, it cannot be that simple, um, especially when you have guys that are capable in the backfield of breaking tackles and making plays. I mean, Bud Foster's going to mix it up, but he puts eight in the box. Somebody's throwing the football. I mean, does it work that simply? Generally speaking, yeah. Um, <laughs> you can you can dictate uh, whether Fedora's going to throw or, or pass based on what you put in the box. And and usually that's a good idea for an offense not to bang your head in the against the wall. I mean, that's that's Fedora's thing is – that's the image he always he always uses is he's not going to be a coach who's just going to bang his forehead against the brick wall because the brick wall is going to keep winning. And I generally agree with that. Now, you know, if you've got the personnel to be able to just bang your head against the brick wall and, you you know, you got a stronger forehead then you know, by all means. But for the most part, that's not going to work. The, the real problem starts is if you've got a team that has enough players on the on the perimeter that they can lock you down one-on-one on the outside and put those guys in the box then you're in trouble then you got nothing but that's that's pretty much true across the board I mean if you can get a team that can single cover you and then commit the extra guy to stop in the run you're probably not going to score a lot of points in that no matter what offense you're in Greg your thoughts on Carolina's defense and we've talked a lot about um, are they better are they not I mean at some point, uh, they've got to make a difference in the game. I know against Miami, 21 of the whatever, 150 Miami scored were offensive uh, turnovers. But thoughts on how they've prepared this week? Do you expect to see a different product as they come out for uh, Papuchas? Yeah, I think the fact that Miles Dorn will be back and uh, Aaron Crawford should be back will pay dividends. Aaron Crawford was, you know, according to pretty much everybody that was at practice, including some on the staff, was the best player on the defensive side of the ball. So not having him has, has been detrimental, especially with you know Jalen Dalton kind of um, you know, not not living up to his potential at this point in the season. Let's put it like that. Uh, and then Dorns, you know, Papuchas was asked about him earlier this week, and he just kind of raved about you know, there's been a significant difference when he's on the field versus when he's not. And so you put those two guys kind of in the heart of the defense back on the field, maybe things can get better. And Fedora harped on, you know, tackling being an issue against Miami and the stats kind of bear it out. But Papuchas was kind of like, yeah, yes, it was an issue, but it was really a problem late in the game when things kind of got away from him. 
Um, but we've seen this defense play well. Granted, Cal does not have a you know elite offense by any stretch, but that was good, solid defense. And so I think that's what North Carolina has to get back to. And I really think that the challenge for for UNC this week is, I mean, Ryan Willis. If you look at the stats, I mean, he's probably playing better than Jackson played for him. Now, he's he's not as dynamic of a runner, but he's got a better arm. And so North Carolina is going to have to get pressure on him, but they're also going to have to do a pretty good job uh, in, in pass protection. Uh, is secondary kind of defending the pass and being the challenge. They can limit his production. That'll give them some opportunities, but if they, they cough up some big plays. That's going to be tough to overcome. Jason does having the quarterback issues. And, and this is something we've talked about for a while. Does it put more pressure on the defense Do those defensive guys think about, uh, we've got to be perfect. We've got to be this or that knowing what they have on the offense. or do they just go out and play and do their job. Like Fedora likes to say. Um, I don't know, <laughs> to be honest. Um, you know, I'm, I'm curious to see that. I, my guess is that they'll lean more towards just going out and do the, doing their job, but I'm as interested to find that out as you are. I would think when you have an offense that can put up 35 or 40, you can be more aggressive and take more chances on the defensive side of the ball. Is that a fair description? even though Carolina hadn't had an offense this year that can put up 35 or 40. Your thoughts? Uh, yes and no. I mean, because if you, you know, it can go both ways because if you've got an offense that you're not confident can, can score, then some, sometimes you get over aggressive to try to get turnovers and, and, and goose some scoring that way. So, you know, I, I think a lot of times, a lot of times what's happening on one side of the ball you know, we try to, you know, sort of play psychologist in terms of how much that affects the other side. But a lot of times it affects what's going on on the other side a lot less than we think. I mean, you are who you are defensively. You either can or can't cover. You either can or can't get pressure. You know, you have your, your specific defensive identity. Now, it may affect some calls, particularly if you can get up early in games. That's where things change. You know, if you're ahead and teams are starting to have to to change their approach a little bit offensively against your defense, then that can change the kinds of things that you're having to defend, particularly in the second halves of games when, when teams are starting to have to throw more to try to get more possessions. But aside from that, I mean, you really are who you are defensively. Let me move again to another topic, but let me get in on this uh, with HillsTravel.com. I've talked about this a lot on this podcast uh, in recent months. It's a great deal for North Carolina fans to get to see the Hills play somewhere away from Chapel Hill. It's the easiest way to get there. Right now, HillsTravel.com is offering packages to Las Vegas for three nights and two games, and then for two nights in Chicago for UNC and Kentucky, and for hotel accommodations at ACC Tournament in Charlotte. Visit HillsTravel.com now. Call 336-855-0060 to book. The trip to Vegas, of course, includes round-trip airfare from RDU, round-trip transportation from the airport to the hotel, and three nights at the Aria Casino and Resort. And the trip to Chicago, get this, two of the best teams in the country squaring off on December 22nd. It's going to be a great time. So visit HillsTravel.com now. Or call 336-855-0060 to book your trip. All right, before we move to 
the prediction portion of the show, which we've really done great uh, this year. Greg, you've probably done the best, um, which is not saying a lot. But <laughs> let me let me ask we, you we both. Set some low bars around here. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, you know, we're just uh, yeah. Jason, I ask you since uh, we've just we've talked about this a lot off air. Um, your thoughts on Kelly Bryant visiting Carolina? Your thoughts on that whole transfer deal from Clemson? Um, he'll be in Chapel Hill on Saturday. I know it's off topic as far as the Carolina Virginia Tech game, but I don't know if it is really. Your thoughts on Bryant visiting? Well, you know, my first of all, I don't think Bryant is a special quarterback by any stretch. I mean, he's, he, he was, he was okay. Uh, he was surrounded by a tremendous amount of talent and a very successful uh, Clemson system. But he was the guy that more, more often than not was the, you know, the, 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 pri- he was the primary reason at different points that their offense was, uh, was limited. He, he, he was the governor on that offense. Uh, now his ability to, make make correct decisions by and large and to uh, use his legs in the running game, those things sometimes helped overcome the limitations that he brought otherwise. But, you know, he was, he was a limited player for them. Uh, and had Surratt been able to stay healthy and, you know, play through the rest of this year maybe and get some more experience, I'm not sure how much of, a, of an upgrade Bryant really would have been over over Surratt with a with another year of of healthy experience, but with Surratt getting hurt, uh, with the current situation, you have to think that Bryant would be a, a really viable player as a senior as a as a uh, stopgap as a uh, a graduate transfer option, and really, I mean, if you're looking at it, you're looking if you're trying to get a comparison. Bryant is a very similar kind of player to what Marquise Williams was. He he doesn't he just without throwing as good a deep ball as Williams, but in terms and, and and certainly faster, more breakaway speed than Williams. But a similar kind of running threat, uh, similar limitations as a as a thrower, uh, and and also in terms of anticipation and some of that. He's probably a little quicker on on uh, his ability to anticipate and throw. Uh, underneath, maybe a little bit better than than Marquise there, but again, not not nearly as good of a of a deep ball as as Marquise had, uh, particularly as last year. But that's basically what you're getting. And to be totally honest, if you could guarantee Carolina, say, uh, a quarterback who is even eighty eighty five percent of what Marquise Williams was as a senior next year, you could pretty well guarantee that that coaching staff would take it. So. It would make a lot of sense at this stage. Um, we'll we'll see what happens. I, I I looking at the list of teams where he's where he's visiting. I, I would be. I would be. Uh, I think it would make a lot of sense for Carolina to wind up being the place he goes. Greg, those comparisons to Marquise Williams, I figured ninety five percent of the people listening to this podcast would say, "I'll take it." <laughs> and. Uh... But it's interesting because I I feel like we've been here as far as covering this transfer quarterback issue a couple of years ago, maybe with Brandon Harris. Uh, it's the shiny nickel. And at some point, Larry Fedora and his staff have got to develop a guy that can come through the system and play. But 
with the nature of the beast in college football, transfers seem to be it. I mean, a team up the road or down the road, whichever way you're traveling, has had some pretty good success and looks to continue that success with transfer quarterbacks. But your thoughts just on that whole dynamic of Bryant, you know, coming in for a visit, if it happens, how do you think that'll, how does that shape North Carolina football um, for next year and maybe even beyond? Well, there's a lot of things to touch on here. Number one, I don't know if any of the three of us, uh, when the Brandon Harris news came out, were jumping for joy about how <laughs> it was going to help UNC's offense. No, um, none of, we were all <laughs> basically saying, yeah, let's wait and see. You know, he's got some potential, maybe. We'll see if there's improvement on all the stuff that he didn't do well at, at LSU, and it's a reason he didn't win the job at LSU. <laughs> But right. a lot of people at LSU or, or blamed LSU for that, if I remember sure. correctly, and gave yeah, for not developing him. That. Yeah, for not developing him. But but he wasn't a guy who'd had any success as a starter. Yeah. So it is a different situation there. I mean, Bryant has had, even though he limited what they could do offensively, they were successful with him as a starter. Sixteen and two, I believe. Which yeah, yeah, we take that, that out. That, Right, and that leads into my second part. Is you like this offseason is a good example, right? We're we're arguing back and forth about is it Elliot, is it Surratt? When at the end of the day, we're kind of like well, you neither probably are going to be your best option. Like if you had your druthers, you would go with someone else probably. Um, whereas when we had these conversations you know, three four years ago, when it was Mitch and Marquise, that's a, a little bit different level. And so you know, if we're talking about Mitch and Marquise and maybe Kelly Bryant's available, eh, maybe not. But now we're talking about you know, <laughs> Elliot and, and Surratt and a couple of young guys who we really don't know how good they can be. Now you're saying well, Bryant looks like a much better option. Um, and I think, that, I think that's kind of the way you have to look at it, is that can he be an upgrade over what we've currently seen? Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, does that mean he's an elite quarterback? Not necessarily. But there's he a difference. Not that I've I've seen him up close and personal in practice. He is not an elite quarterback. Not even close. So, so that that comes into our next question, which I think you bring up a good point there, Tommy. Is development? Uh, you know, Mitch came in as a highly touted kid. Um, he got some work in under Latrell, uh, even you know Blake. But kind of beyond that, what have we seen development-wise the last couple of years? And I know there's been injuries and you've had transfers and some different things, but Harris didn't pan out. Uh, Caleb Henderson, you know, whether that was an evaluation issue or that was a development issue, he didn't pan out. Ratliff Williams is now playing wide receiver. And then we've got Elliott and we've got Surratt, who is now hurt. Um, and so everything we've been told is they feel very good about the young guys in Fortin and Reuter. But I think anytime you have to kind of rely on a true freshman to step in and kind of be the savior, that doesn't bode well. And so that's kind of how we're at this position where now you're talking about Bryant checks all these boxes uh, and he, if you can get him, he gives you the stopgap for a year. But what happens then? You know, how do you address some of these development issues? Uh, and so I think it would be very beneficial for North Carolina. I think there's a lot for Kelly Bryant to, to like. I mean, the entire offense comes back. The offensive line, while it has a long ways to go, it has shown some positive growth. Uh, we knew that was going to be an issue throughout the course of the season. So there's a lot of lot of things where you, it's kind of appealing to him. 
Uh, but we'll just have to wait and see how it plays out, of course. And you know, Saturday night, I, I think you know, with it being a – it should be a competitive game. Um, it's going to be a good atmosphere. It should be a, a good scene for, for Kelly, although it's tough to, uh, tough to top Clemson. <laughs> it's not even close. Um, <laughs> and, and anybody who's been at both places knows that's true. I mean, Clemson's a special atmosphere. Uh, one, one, one other thing in terms of comparing to Brandon Harris, again, you remember Harris was, was transferring from LSU after not developing for four years, after continuing to struggle more or less with the same things and the same stuff that he struggled with at Carolina when he got there. And after getting beaten out by more, by basically relatively untalented, I mean, non-elite quarterbacks uh, uh, down there. So you're looking at a guy who had not had success. Bryant, got beat out by a guy that, in my opinion, was the second best high school quarterback prospect I've, I've seen coming out of high school. I mean, th- he got beat out because, not because he wasn't, wasn't playing well and, wasn't, and isn't a good player, but because the guy behind him is going to be a number one or number two pick in the draft. So very different kind of situation there, too. It'll be interesting to watch how it all shakes out. I feel like we have been here before, but maybe we haven't. Carolina football always, if it's not on the field, they give you plenty off the field. Uh, Jason and Greg, <laughs> well, let's do our predictions right fast. We we owe it to our listeners to continue this great run. Let me sneak in our last commercial break. We'll be right back to do our thing. I'll start with you, Jason. Probably right. started with you every week, but Carolina, Virginia Tech, Keenan Stadium, seven o'clock. Yeah, I'm, I, I until I see otherwise, I see no reason to pick Carolina, um, and especially in this this particular matchup. I don't think Virginia Tech is as good as a lot of people seem to think. I think that uh, opening Labor Day win over Florida State kind of elevated their stock more than than it should have because that's not a real good Florida State team. Uh, and they're not quite the same team that they were when they played Florida State because they lost their uh, probably their second best player up front uh, who was dismissed after the Old Dominion game. So not quite the same caliber team uh, that, that, that some people think they are, but I still think that they're more or less a little bit better than, than Carolina is. Uh, and, and the big issue is I just don't see how Carolina is going to score a whole lot of points unless Fortin comes in and, and chucks it around well. That's the that's the real wild card wild card here. I mean, if they can come in and beat single coverage and and get some big plays in the passing game, then then Carolina could win the game. But until I see it, I'm going to pick up. I'm going to pick against it. I'm going to go with a relatively low scoring game. Uh, I'm going to go with something along the lines of uh, Virginia Tech uh, 31, uh, North Carolina 17. Greg, your choice. I tend to uh, lean Jason's way unless you can tell me something otherwise. I think Jason makes a lot of lucid, valid points. <laughs> um, but in the preseason, I thought North Carolina uh, could win this game. And while North Carolina has not played as well as I think any of us expected, Virginia Tech certainly has not. They got a lot of holes on that defense side of the ball. Uh, really have not been that good. And uh, I certainly agree with Jason that the Florida State game really kind of boosted their their stock a little bit. And I do think this is an opportunity now that North Carolina's pretty much got everybody back, uh, other than Sherrod, of course, that there is the opportunity. If they can get some decent quarterback play, that they can match up pretty well with Virginia Tech. Uh, and so I've got UNC 
uh, sneaking a, an upset here. I've got North Carolina winning 31-27. Interesting. If, but, but if they get that quarterback play, I think they will win the game. I'm torn as I always am. Now wait a minute. You just said you just said that you were did you not say you were following in uh Jason's yeah. footprints? <laughs> Unless you could swing me back, go rewind this and play that. So I was you, successful in convincing you. You were successful into giving me pause. Okay. Um okay, so I don't think Virginia Tech is as good as the Florida State win scene when it happened. I don't think Virginia Tech it's as bad as the old Dominion loss uh, because that old Dominion team is not good. I think they went out and lost to East Carolina the following week. How Virginia Tech lost to them, I, I will never figure out. Uh, but I look at the Duke game in Durham, and people say, uh, Duke, Duke, whatever. Uh, they whip Duke's rear end in Durham, and that's something that Carolina hadn't done consistently for a while now. I just think Virginia Tech, I think Fortin provides – a boost and makes it interesting, but I think Virginia Tech ends up winning 28-23 in Keenan Stadium, and the slow burn continues in Chapel Hill, but I could be wrong. I could take the Greg approach. Um, I could always edit this podcast at some point down the road and get it right, but Carolina loses 28-23. We'll see how it shakes out, and at some point, we're going to have a beer for whoever wins this uh, prediction contest, but it might be of a bush light with the uh, way we've been doing it. Jason, Greg, appreciate y'all taking time to join me on Thursday evening. Carolina Keenan Stadium, 7 o'clock, Virginia Tech. Boys, I know y'all be watching, and I'll be there. Y'all take care. Thanks for listening to the Inside Carolina podcast, presented by Jersey Mike Subs of Chapel Hill. Get 15% off your online order with the promo code HEELS15. Go to jerseymikes.com slash order now.